Hey folks, Preet here. We continue to follow the latest news out of Manhattan. As District Attorney Alvin Bragg reportedly closes in on indicting Donald Trump, he has become the target of death threats. Meanwhile, three House GOP committee chairs sent Bragg a letter calling on him to testify about an indictment that hasn't even happened yet. And Trump's personal lawyer, Joe Tacopina, has been making the rounds on talk shows, giving us a preview of some of Trump's likely defenses. Joyce Vance and I discuss all of this and more on the Cafe Insider podcast. Today, we're sharing a clip from the episode with listeners of Stay Tuned. To hear our full conversation and access all other Cafe Insider content, try the membership for just $1 for one month. You can do that at cafe.com insider. That's cafe.com insider. We look forward to having you as a part of the insider community. So let's talk about the strength of the case, having talked about the relative seriousness of the case. So just to remind everyone, based on what we understand the case to be about, two things have to be proven to make out the felony, right? First, that business records were falsified. And then second, that the falsification of those business records was done in the furtherance of some other crime or to conceal some other crime, right? So the first step is the falsification of business records. And the evidence, as we understand it, is that this hush money payment was made to Stormy Daniels. And on the books and records of the Trump organization, it was claimed that it was a uh, legal retainer, legal fees to Michael Cohen, because Michael Cohen was basically the pass-through for how the money went to Stormy Daniels. He he fronted the money himself. He took out a home mortgage loan, which is interesting. And then he was reimbursed by the Trump organization. Trump himself signed the checks for the amount that was paid to Stormy Daniels, plus a legal fee on top of that, right? And it was also more than was paid to Stormy Daniels because Michael Cohen had to be made whole uh, pre-tax, right? So the amount of money paid to Stormy Daniels had to be increased because presumably this money that was being paid to Michael Cohen, Michael Cohen would owe taxes on. So to make him whole at the end of the day, he got the full reimbursement, plus trued up for tax purposes, plus a fee. And Joe Tacopina and others keep saying, well, there's no falsification of business records because it was a legal fee. Michael Cohen invoiced it and he's the one who arranged it and it was his advice and we did pay the lawyer. So no falsification of a business record. Is that right? Um, No, that's absolutely not <laughs> right. Look, I mean, you know, I can make an invoice for a, a week at the spa and send it to a client and say, you know, here's my legal fees. And that doesn't change the basic nature of the, the funding, which was a donation to the Trump campaign. Yeah, I, the way I thought about it is if you buy a house for a million dollars and your lawyer arranges for it and takes care of the paperwork and charges a fee and you pay your lawyer based on the invoice $1.1 million, that's not <laughs> $1.1 million is not all legal fee and legal retainer. You bought a house and you can't disguise the purchase of a house and that can have consequences for, for tax purposes or other purposes that you can imagine if investigations were to take place. And so the intent of the law, as far as I understand it, is for there to be integrity in business dealings. And the next question that arises, and it seems to be this is part of the defense, although it's not very beautifully articulated, is that so long as the record remains internal and it's a privately held company, I think this is the argument, you can say whatever you want on the books and records because who cares? Because no misrepresentation was made to a third party with respect to that business record or to the government or to the IRS or anyone else. And I think that the defense is, 
if we've never had to pass along that, you know, allegedly false book or record to the government, then it's fine. Do you buy that? You know, I think it's an argument that proves too much because it's not like you're writing those records just for fun. You're writing those records to use them. You're going to use them when you pay taxes. You're going to use them when you do accounting, when you apply for loans, all sorts of valuation sorts of implications. So no, I don't buy that defense. Yeah, I mean, it goes to, it goes to the P&L of the company also, right? Yeah, absolutely. Is something an expense? Is something tax deductible? Is something an asset that you've acquired? If it's an asset that you've acquired, does it go up or does it go down? And I know that's part of some other investigation that's been going on. So it seems to me, I mean, I'm trying to think if there are any other defenses on part one, the falsification of the business record. And by the way, this maybe plays in a little bit. The other defense, sort of, it's more optical defense, I think, than a real legal defense, is that Donald Trump was the victim of an extortion. And as the victim of an extortion, you know, what was he going to (laughs) say? He said at one point, Takapina, just someone interviewing him. I think it was to Chuck Todd, actually. You know, you're you're paying off your alleged mistress, former porn star. What are you going to say? As if that's a defense. That to me is more of a nullification argument. That the guy was, you know, between a rock and a hard place. What was he going to do? And as Chuck Todd said to the lawyer, yeah, how about the truth? Is the extortion argument viable in any way other than to get the jury to feel sorry for the defendant? This notion of Donald Trump as a victim is a non-starter because there's too much evidence of how Trump handles even situations where he's at fault. Imagine a situation where someone's trying to extort him. He would just absolutely blow past it, right? There's no way that this guy who doesn't pay his legitimate bills would pay so much money and do it in such a surreptitious fashion if it was just a, a raw extortion. So can you think of any other bases on which Alvin and the DA's office might fail to prove the falsification of a book or record? You know, there is this language in the statute that talks about committing the conduct with an intent to defraud. I think that's really wrapped up in this argument that you've spooled out that Takapina and others have made about, well, the records were just internal, so there can't be an intent to defraud. But it's worth pointing out that that's tied up with the language of the statute. And I think they'll try to float that both here and in connection with where you're going next with whatever crime is used to accelerate the misdemeanor into a felony. Yeah, so then that's interesting. And people keep calling it a novel legal theory. Now, the phrase novel legal theory can refer to a lot of things. It can be used to refer to something that there's a lot of dispute about. And, you know, some jurisdictions say it's okay and some jurisdictions say it's not okay. It can be something that's done and has been done, but has never been tested in the sense that a court has never directly ruled upon the propriety of the thing. Or it can be something that nobody's ever thought of before. It's not happened before. And that's why it's called novel. I think we're in category two. The DA's office, as I understand it, and people have documented these cases, has on many occasions brought a felony action with respect to falsification of books and records. And I think it's even done so in the case of, you tell me if I'm wrong, because you're a better scholar of these things than I am. It's even been done in connection with the furtherance of the second crime is a campaign finance crime. My understanding is, even though that's been done, it's been done in the context of 
cases that have been resolved by plea, there is no case that has legitimized that practice. It's not been addressed specifically by the highest court in New York or any other court that I'm aware of. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that that's correct. And so that's to say that there are novel issues involved here. And of course, prosecutors don't love novel issues in important cases, which makes me wonder if they don't have something that's a little bit less legally novel in their hip pocket alongside this one. Yeah, so if it's the case that it's novel and there are questions about the seriousness, I go back to the same earlier question because it's worth testing and retesting. Is it legitimate for people to question whether this is the right case? Yeah, it absolutely is. And and this is where I'll, I'll kick in with my appellate lawyer hat on because I can think of a number of situations where prosecutors had a novel theory that they had worked out, that they wanted to charge in a righteous case. And the appellate lawyers with a little bit of a, a cooler head had to evaluate how much litigation risk there was, right? There's there's no point in putting your resources into a case only to lose it on appeal. And so we talked last week a little bit about percentages. What percentage certainty do you need to authorize on a case? Well, here's a place where I would really entertain that as an appellate lawyer thinking about, you know, if there's an 80% chance I'm going to lose this one on appeal, well, I'm never going to authorize from the get-go. And you have to make that sort of assessment based on cases that have been decided, questions that are wide open for courts, and how you think the courts might rule on them based on other precedent. I forgot what I said last week with respect to the question about how certain I would want to be that I could get a conviction on this charge against Donald Trump. I think I said, I don't know if I said 90%. (laughs) And thinking about it for several more days, my percentage has gone up. You want to be 99% sure? 98.6, you know, the normal body temperature of a human being. I would want to be really sure too. In the context that we're talking about, right? Given questions about the seriousness of the of the case, given the you know plausible arguments about the novelty of the theory, you want to be really damn sure because I think the consequence of going forward like this, unlike in some other cases, and losing a trial, they're just it's just bad. It's bad for that office. It's bad for public trust. It's bad for people who think the, the rule of law is a fleeting concept in this country. And, I, you know, maybe I'm overstating it and next week I'll have, I'll have a different view. No, no, I don't think you are. I think you're right. But I'm, I'm bothered by, you've got to be, you got to be pretty damn sure in a case like this. You really do. You know, the question is what you consider. And I know a lot of people worry about jury nullification, right? Getting some sort of a stealth juror who's going to torpedo the case. And I'll confess that that's one of those known unknowns that I tried to not worry about as a prosecutor. I tried to be sophisticated at selecting a jury. I tried to screen out people that I thought might do that. But ultimately, if I believed in the case, if I thought the the evidence and the law was on my side, and not just in a 51% way, but as you say, in like a 98.6% way, then you go ahead and you, and you try your case. I mean, one piece of good evidence, I think, I wonder how strong you think this is. And again, Trump's lawyers try to spin it. Trump lied about knowing about the payment, right? And maybe it's the case you can just say, well, of course he's going to lie because it was about something that was personally embarrassing and he wanted to spare his family. But the other interpretation of the lie, as prosecutors often make this argument, is that it's consciousness of guilt. And he knew that there was something not just untoward, but perhaps unlawful 
about making that payment and characterizing it the way they characterized it. Which way does that cut, you think? You know, I do think it's a consciousness of guilt argument. It was interesting that Trump repeated the lie again this weekend. A reporter named Von Hilliard was on the plane flight, I think maybe coming back from Waco with Trump, and asked that question, you know, when did you find out? And Trump sort of repeats that he didn't know and that he didn't know Stormy Daniels and had never had an affair with her. And I think that that really is something that prosecutors can use with a jury Because when a defendant is lying about something that they're claiming is innocuous, well, why are they telling the lie unless they do have consciousness of guilt? Yeah. I mean, the other problem and worry one has is violence. We should should spend some time talking Mm, about, you know, whatever you think about the case. Wait, I have to ask you, what is wrong with New York? Thanks for listening. To hear the full episode, head to cafe.com slash insider and try out the membership for just $1 for one month. That's cafe.com slash insider. To the many of you who have chosen to join the insider community, thank you for supporting our work. Mm-hmm.